Well, first, let me say what a privilege it is to be here this morning, filling the Westminster pulpit. I have my JLV, my John Vance gown on this morning, and so I'm honored to wear that. John gave this to me when I was, uh, when I was ordained, and uh, coming back to Westminster gives me a chance to wear it, so I'm thankful for that. It is indeed a privilege to be here. And while I'm in front of you, it does also give me a chance to thank you uh, for the support that you as a church showed to my family, uh, uh, especially to my mother and my sister and to my dad. I appreciate the prayers, and, and it's such a beautiful thing uh, to have a church family such as this. And your generosity uh, toward my family is, is uh, something I wanted to thank you for, and so it's a privilege to stand before you and be able to do it. And also for the school, the church supports Chapel Field and very grateful for that and uh, thankful. So thank you to you all. As Steve mentioned this morning, today begins week three of Lent as we come into this season. And Lent is the season of Lent and the church calendar as a whole is a beautiful tool for us in our, in our lives as Christians and in the life of the church for our personal piety. It's a beautiful thing. And Lent provides us the opportunity to intentionally identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in his humiliation. I I appreciate the fact that the catechism question this morning was regarding the humiliation of Christ. Because as we enter into Lent, we have a chance to intentionally identify with Christ in that humiliation. Particularly in these 40 days of Lent, to identify with him in his 40 days of suffering and humiliation in the wilderness a time of fasting, a time of temptation. And we might ask, what is Jesus doing in the wilderness? Like John the Baptist asked him as he came to be baptized, what are you doing here? You should be baptizing me. But Jesus is in the wilderness because he is identifying with us. His 40 days in the wilderness are him identifying with Israel and her 40 days in the wilderness. That is to say, as God becomes man and he comes to identify with us, where do you find us? It's in the wilderness. That's who we are. We are a wilderness people. We are an exiled people. We are a suffering people, a broken people, a sinful people. And Lent is that time to identify with it, to recognize it, to contemplate it. And I hope you do. It's a time to contemplate our sin, the very sin that necessitated the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very sin that brought him to the wilderness, the very sin that brought him to the Jordan to be baptized, the very sin that brought him to Golgotha to be crucified. Lent is a time to contemplate that and deal with it, to own it. And it's also a time to reckon with our frailty, with our weakness, the the weakness that this sin has wrought in us, the consequence of our sin. Lent is a time to remember that we are from the dust and to the dust we will return. Do you feel it? I feel it. I feel like we've been in a long Lenten season. I know my, my own family personally, not only just the loss of my dad, over this past calendar year, we've done 16 funerals, 16 funerals and memorial services. I'm sure you can tell similar stories. It's been a heavy year. And going beyond, we're all exhausted from COVID and thankful maybe to be out the other side, yet we all have the sword of Damocles hanging over us, wondering when the mandates and these kinds of things will, may they ever return. We're exhausted from that. We're exhausted from social unrest and now war in Ukraine and dealing with that. We're we're bothered and exhausted from economic trouble. 
And this has been a heavy time. It feels appropriate in this season of Lent to deal with it. And then add on top of that my reaction to everything. <laughs> That's just the brokenness of the world we live in. But then there's my reaction to it, the sinfulness of my reaction, the embarrassment of my reaction, my, my worry, my anxieties, my disoriented lack of priorities or, or misplaced priorities, treating penultimate things as if they were ultimate, my anger and bitterness that has been exposed in this difficult and challenging and heavy time. Well, Lent is a time to come to grips with that. It's a time to reflect. It's a time to remember that this is the world you get when you abandon the Father's house. When, like the younger son, you say, I want my inheritance, I'm out of here, this is the world you get, the reality you get. The parable of the prodigal son teaches us that when you leave the father's house, the pigsty comes pretty quickly. It finds you. Adam and Eve learned it. They were the first version of that story. They essentially did the same thing, right? It's a first telling of that story, basically wanting their promised inheritance, but earlier than it was to be given. And so they grasped after it, and out they went like the prodigal, out into the wilderness, out into the foreign city. And the pigsty found them pretty quickly. And our text this morning, which is Isaiah 55, and we had the full chapter read to us this morning, which was wonderful to hear the context. Such a beautiful chapter. But this chapter is written to an Israel that is about to experience the same thing. They're about to be reminded that when you leave the father's house, you find the pigsty pretty quickly. This was written to a people that were about to be sent out into exile. They were going to learn the hard lesson as well, and we are to learn it. Not only from Adam and Eve, not only from the story of the prodigal son, but from Israel themselves. What does it look like when we abandon God, when we demand our inheritance and flee? And yet, Isaiah 55 is so beautiful It's the good news that is sent to exiles. It's the good news that is sent to wilderness people. It's the good news sent to us in a season of Lent so that we might have it, if you will, joyfully ringing in our ears in the midst of the Lenten heaviness, in the midst of that off we go to Babylon or out into exile or out into the wilderness. We have this glorious prophetic word coming to us and encouraging us. Our text is Good news for prodigals. It's good news for Lenten people. It's good news for exiles. And this good news comes to us in the text, as you heard Steve read it, at the very beginning in a swarm of verbs, in a swarm of imperative verbs. I I think in verse seven, there are, in verse one, excuse me, there are seven of them. It just peppers you with beautiful verbs. Come, Come, buy, come, buy, eat, delight. Verbs just peppering us with good news, a command, a good command, challenging and encouraging us as we have to live in this exilic world. And I want to look at those verbs here. And I want to cluster them, though there's a bunch of them and they're all through the text. I just want to cluster them into three. And I'd like to do it with the prodigal son story kind of hanging behind us as, as a reference for us. 
So the first is listen. Now, I know I don't have an outline. Kevin is so much better than I am. Kevin has, I think, an outline for you to fill things in. I have no such thing. I looked on the back. There's, there's just blanks, so you're on your own. You're on your own. You'll have to figure out what the blanks would have been and then fill them in. Well, the first is listen. You can write that if you'd like. Listen. The command comes to them later in the text, down in verse 2. Listen diligently to me. Verse 3, incline your ear, hear, and your soul may live. This is the first command, even though it's down a little bit later, I'm starting back there, because this is the first command that we need to hear, because the fundamental problem with man, with natural man, is that we refuse to listen. And we know listening is not the same as hearing. Listening is hearing plus. It's Listening is hearing and Applying, listening is hearing and processing. Listening is hearing and obeying and responding appropriately. That's what listening is. It's trusting and obeying. Adam and Eve would not listen. I assume they heard, but they wouldn't listen. In fact, they listened to the wrong voice. They trusted the wrong voice. They had a choice to make. Whose voice will I listen to? Whose word will I trust? And they chose to listen to the serpent and to trust his voice. Israel was refusing to listen. Prophet after prophet after prophet is coming to them and urging them to repent and to turn to the Lord. And they will not listen. In the story of the prodigal son, it's like you want to grab this young son after he's demanded his inheritance from the father and go grab him by his collar and say, son, listen to your father. Listen to what your father has been teaching you and demonstrating to you throughout your entire life. Don't do what you're about to do. You are about to make a terrible mistake. You're about to make what I call a Jeremiah 2 Mistake. If you remember in that word, the word of the Lord comes to Israel through Jeremiah. And the Lord says, my people have committed two great sins. He can boil it down to two. And he says, first, they have rejected me, the fountain of living water. That is, you have this source, this bubbling source of living water right here for you where you can come and have as you will. It will never be depleted. You will never be in want. But you have rejected it. And then secondly, and stupidly, you have carved out for yourself cisterns that cannot hold water. So like an idiot, what you decided to do was make a cistern so that you could push off the fountain, but take the water with you. But the problem is you can't make a cistern that can hold the water. You scoop up the water and take it with you and it bleeds out and it depletes and you find yourself empty or you find yourself after having gone to the big city and spent your money in all kinds of short-term fun and fleeting pleasures found yourself with an empty empty cistern in a pigsty listen listen to your father don't forsake the treasure you've misplaced the treasure son 
You think the treasure is in the stuff, but what you'll discover soon is that the Father himself is the treasure. It's the fountain you want, not the water in isolation from the fountain. We're reading with some of the high schoolers, uh, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, and if you know in that story, if you don't know what I'm about to say, it'll sound very weird to you. But, you know, he, he tells this fanciful uh, picture. He's not trying to describe what heaven and hell are really like, but he's more describing what our life is like. But anyway, people who are in hell are allowed to get on a bus and go to heaven if they would like. And so they do. They, a group of people get on and they go to heaven. And people from heaven, who they know in their former life, come and meet them and invite them to come in. But in order to come to heaven, you have to lose something. You're, it, it might be very painful. You're going to have to give something up and repent. Well, anyway, there's this one character up there who discovers a tree that's growing golden apples. But everything in heaven is very weighty. And the, and the people from hell or the, 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 the beginnings of hell... I have no substance to them, and everything in heaven is so solid, and they, they can't lift it. And, and this one guy just wants to, he wants one of these golden apples so badly to take back to hell with him. <laughs> and a voice speaks out to him, hey, 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 you don't have to take the apple with you. All you have to do is repent, and you can have the tree. You, you can stay here and just enjoy the tree, and all the golden apples are yours. The guy won't do it. He, keeps, he tries to take a dozen apples, and he prunes it down just to two, and then he can't handle two. They're too heavy. He can only take one, but even the one is too big, so he tries to find the smallest apple, and he just can't. It's too heavy. He can't drag it out. But Lewis just depicts the stupidity of all this labor to try to take one of these things and run away with it and to forsake the very source of the blessing itself. And you want to say to the prodigal son, son, listen. You want to grab the elder brother by the collars, and say, listen to your father and go into the party and feast. Why won't you listen? But that is the word we have to us in Isaiah 55. The first thing we need to hear is listen. And hence, the word of the Lord through Isaiah to us with dull ears, when he calls us to listen, is this very convicting question. He asks us in verse 2, why, why, son, why, daughter, do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for on that which does not satisfy? Why? Why are you foolishly squandering what you have on those things which will not in the end satisfy you? This is a question we all have to reckon with. Again, with the sophomores, we're reading Augustine's Confessions. At the very heart of Augustine's Confessions is this reality. This was his life struggle. He looked back at his life, and what he's confessing in the confessions is that this was his life, a pursuit of things that in the end would not satisfy, spending his money on that which would not bring life to him. He wanted fame. He wanted sexual pleasure. He wanted all these kinds of things, and he confesses again and again. It's pretty repetitive that this is what he was after. And the very theme of the book is, oh, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Until we learn to spend our money on what truly will satisfy. How about you? How about me? What are you spending your money on? Maybe literally. How we spend our money does kind of reveal priorities to us. How do you, what are you spending your money on? But, but, but bigger than that, what are you spending your life on? 
What is your main and chief pursuit? Is it something that will satisfy? Is it Christ? Or is it everything else but or anything else but Christ? This is the question to us. What are we spending our lives on? I'm reminded, uh, thinking of my dad, when we, uh, in, in uh, um, chapel in the morning, one of the lines, you know, my dad had, my dad would have lines he would give to us as a family and, you know, remind us of. And one of them was a line, you may be familiar with it, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And I, I had to go look that up. I didn't know who the source was, and I wanted to say it right, I think, even at the funeral. The, the source is a, a guy whose name is C.T. Stud. Like, how cool is that? Like, your last name is Stud. <laughs> C.T. Stud. It's like, wow. But this guy was an amazing pastor, an evangelist, just had a heart for missions. He, he changed his life. He was, he was a, I know it doesn't impress us, but he was like, he was like a big-time cricket player. Americans are like, cricket, you know? But it's like MLB, I guess, in England. I don't know what it would be. Who meets Christ and who forsakes it all to say, I'm devoting my life to missions. That's what he wanted to do. And hence, he wrote this poem, Only One Life Will Soon Be Passed. Only What's Done for Christ Will Last. And it's got a very monotonous and repetitive refrain in it throughout the whole poem, challenging us, challenging us, challenging us. But again, again, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Indeed. How are we spending our lives? The command here is to come to Christ to see our whole life as a resource by which we might love him and serve him. Jesus Christ, when he was in the wilderness, is tempted by Satan to spend his money on that which will not satisfy. This is what Satan offers him. And unlike Adam, praise God, and unlike Israel, praise God, and unlike you and me, he listens to his father, and he responds with the word of God and obeys. So the first call to us in this season of Lent, in our exilic Lenten state, is listen. The second is come. Come. Come home. In verse 1, four times. I mean, you know, they tell you. I remember R.C. Sproul telling us this, reminding us, hey, there's no bold print in the Bible when it's originally written. But when you see repetition, it means this is important. Well, you get repetition here. Four times in verse 1. The call, the command is come, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Four times this emphatic plea to come. What an amazing and blessed encouragement it is even to foolish rebels like us that we are not out of reach of the Father's invitation. He summons us, even as we're heading out into exile, he summons us to come. The Father summons his rebel sons. He summons the defiant one out in the far city, and he summons in the compliant one, still a rebel, out there in the fields laboring on for the Father and tells them to come home. What a beautiful picture of the heart of our Heavenly Father calling us to come back from Babylon, looking down the road for us to come, and ready when He sees us to lift up His his robe and to run to His Son and throw Himself upon us. Now it's true, our Heavenly Father will send us out. He does, after all, let the Son go. The Son demands His inheritance 
He gives it to him. It's a shocking, for me, it's a shocking part of that story that the father takes his inheritance, which I assume is half of what he has, and gives it to the son and says, there you go, son, lets him go. Though we're not told, I assume, maybe I shouldn't assume, that the elder son, we know, he will eventually come in the house, but he's not coming in immediately, and the father will leave him out there, I have no doubt. The father will send Israel out into exile. They're about to go as they receive this text. Oh, the father will send them out for a time. But for those whom he loves, the sending out and the letting go is like smelling salt. He does it with a loving motivation that we might be sober and come to our senses in the pigsty and come home. That in going to Babylon and feeling the brokenness of things, we might come to our senses and come home. There's a beautiful line in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein when Victor Frankenstein's wife, Elizabeth, suffers death and loss and she's completely broken by it. And Mary Shelley has Victor Frankenstein saying these words, and I love them. Victor Frankenstein says, she had now experienced the first of those sorrows sent to wean us from this earth. She had experienced the first of those sorrows, death and loss. She had experienced the first of those sorrows, sent. It's it's interesting that Frankenstein in that doesn't see these sorrows as just something she experienced. No, they were sent with a purpose. She experienced the first of those sorrows, sent to wean us from this earth. What What a beautiful way to think of sorrow. What a wonderful way to think of our sufferings that from a loving father, they are actually sent to wean us from this earth. The son is allowed to go to the far city that he might end up in the pigsty, that he might come to his senses and that he might come home. And as such, then the father calls us to come. And in verses 6 and 7, we kind of get a better picture of what this coming looks like. In verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him. This is what coming means. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is what coming means. It's what we do when we confess our sins. We're recognizing again and again the call to come home, to come before our Father and to confess. And when we do, this text tells us there are glorious, glorious promises to you. Wonderful. And think about hearing this as you're heading out into exile. What beautiful promises. Going back to verse 3. Incline your ear and hear. Come to me. Hear so that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. It's like, you know, the, the, the son thinks, ah, yeah, you could put yourself in his shoes. It's like, do I go home to my father? I remember one time my dad asked me, we were having a, a group of Chinese students in for a camp for a week. And my dad, if kids were coming, they were hearing the gospel. So these kids could barely speak English. And he's like, I need you to do a chapel for them. I said, we're doing chapel at a camp. You need to do chapel for them. And we're going to, all of us are going to do one a day. So I said, what do I, what do I say to these kids? I got this one shot at them. They know nothing. They have not, they don't even have a concept of a personal God. 
So I said, I'm going to tell them the story of the prodigal son. I'm just going to tell them this story as like, here's an encapsulation of Christianity. And so I, I kind of dramatically telling this story. And I get to the point where the, where the son now makes the decision, oh, maybe, you know, you're really at rock bottom. Like you've taken half of your dad's stuff and you've squandered it on prostitutes. And now you're going to come home and say, so dad? <laughs> and I, I'm just trying to engage them. And I said, so, so the, the boy decides to come home. And what do you think will happen when he comes home? And they're all kind of sitting there looking at me. And, and one boy raised his hand. And I said, yes. And he said, he will kill him. <laughs> I said, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what you could feel like. How could you go home to dad? How could you go home and say, so, dad? And the boy knows it. But what does Isaiah 55 say? Come home. And you know what I will do? I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will. I will. You know what I'll do? Come home, son. I will find the best robe and put it on you. I will take my ring. The ring of family membership, the, the ring of being an, inherit, an heir of all that I have, I will take it and put it on you. I will slaughter the fattened calf for you. Beautiful promises. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Seek the Lord while he may be found and you will live. Return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And he will abundantly Pardon. The son comes back and says, I would, I'll accept, man, I would love just to be a slave. And the father says, you're a son. You're a son. Listen. Come home. And then finally, buy and eat. Buy and eat. Now, this is ironic because we're told to the, the audience to this group is a group that has no money. Come, everyone who thirsts, so we're needy. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. It's just a beautiful, godly paradox and irony. Come, you who are thirsty, you who are needy, and you who are destitute and have nothing to offer with nothing in your hands to bring, come, buy, and eat. And here again, The heart of the Father is so beautifully exposed and on display for us because he tells us, do this without money and without price. Don't worry about the money. This meal, this unbelievably costly meal, will cost you nothing. You stink like pigs. You have nothing in your hand to bring. Come and eat without money and without price. The feast is already prepared. Well, who's picking up the tab? We know who's picking up the tab. We know what the cost of this meal was, but to you, it is absolutely free. Our generous father will pick up the tab. Our true elder brother will pick up the tab. And as such, they invite you into the house to eat and to feast. Indeed, we have a generous father. Because in this text, it doesn't even just tell you who have no money, come buy and eat. But it's what we eat. 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, your labor for what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Other translations say, delight yourself in abundance. It's like coming back to the fountain of the living water. There's abundance. The food table will never run out. It's an abundant feast. That is to say, the father that summons us home is not a skinflint. The father that summons us home doesn't portion out blessings. Now you got your inheritance. Now here's what I'll give you. He doesn't do that. The father summons you back and opens the floodgates of the fountain again. Prepares a table before you. The Bible says at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is the father who summons you into his presence. Jesus summons the losers. The tax collectors, the prostitutes. And then he says, I've come that you might have life. But not just life, but that you might have it more abundantly. Paul says in Ephesians 1, when he's rattling off the blessings that are ours, and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with what? Every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing is yours, freely offered to you. The Bible calls you co-heirs. Now, I can just let these terms that we're used to hearing just sink in for a second. The Bible calls you co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. The same Jesus Christ who said to his disciples just before he ascended, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what's mine, everything. And you, you exilic people, you broken people, you rebellious sons and daughters, you who demanded your inheritance and made your crummy cisterns and ran off and bled them dry and have nothing and smell like pigs. No offense. I'm with you. It's, I should say we. <laughs> we have been invited back to the Father's house and made co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the book of Revelation, when you read the letters to the seven churches, each of them, who are all struggling except for one, there's only one church that doesn't get any kind of rebuke. But they're all struggling, and they all need to be rebuked, and they're all called basically to repent and to come home, to listen, and when they do, they are promised all sorts of just unbelievable blessings. Go read them, you know. I'll give you this, I'll give you that, I'll give you this. And of course, you'll remember, because Pastor Kevin preached on Revelation, that the fact that it's seven churches means, while these are directed to the particular churches, of course, it's meant for the church as a whole. And so these are all of our blessings. But the last one, to the church of Laodicea, this tepid church, this lukewarm church, this church that can't quite get its act together, like you and me, He says to him, if you'll come back, if you'll listen, if you will come, you will buy and eat. If you will come home, 
I will give. Now, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I will give to you to sit on my throne with me as my father gave me to sit on his throne with him. Now, if I said that to you, and it was not in the Bible, like you would do right to find stones around here and stone me for blasphemy that we would sit on the throne of God. But to the church of Laodicea, this crummy, lukewarm church, he says to them, come home. And do you know what I will give you? Sonship. I will give you to sit on my throne with me. Our father does not portion out blessings. He gives you the whole thing and calls you a son and a daughter of his. Westminster Presbyterian Church, I want to challenge you, members and friends, during this time of Lenten contemplation, do not look away from your sin. Take this time. I I tell the students at school, I know there's church traditions that don't practice Lent, and they view the church calendar, some of of them even offensively, because it's not in the Bible. So I tell the students, don't. It's a tool. It's a tool for the church. Use it. Of course we're supposed to think about our sin all the time, do we? Okay, so use this time to reflect and to contemplate. Do not look away. Do not be distracted from it. Consider your frailty, that you are dust and to dust you will return, that life is a vapor, as Pastor Kevin taught us all so well from the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember your frailty. Do not push it away or turn away. Deal with it. Own it. But use it as a magnifying glass. Use your frailty and the nature of your sin as a magnifying glass for seeing the glory of your Father and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Justin, I'm here referencing all the Sherrods. I get all my good stuff from the Sherrods, okay, so... But as Justin said to the students in chapel the other day, Lent is a journey. It's heading toward Easter. It's a great way of saying it. So use this season of Lent. Use the reality of your sin and your brokenness as a magnifying glass by which you might see the greatness of your Father. That you might hear the glorious welcome of your Father. That you might see the abundance of his love and of his generosity. That you might hear the one who forgives you and the one who calls you home. The one who offers to you the most costly of meals and yet the freest of meals at the same time. And so I charge you, run. Listen, run home and eat. Find Christ and in him the only thing which can ever truly satisfy you. Find in him rest for your weary soul. Find in him satisfaction for your hungry and thirsty soul. And find in him forgiveness for your sin-sick soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how generous you are. How gracious you are. Father, even in the sorrows that you send to wean us from this earth, even in allowing us to take our quote-unquote inheritance and run off to the big city that we might squander it, even in that you are gracious. For by it you sober us. You call us home. And when we come home, you lavish on us your grace, giving to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Teach us our sin, we pray. Remind us of our frailties. That in learning of them, we might learn even more how great you are. And how deep and unsearchable the love of God is toward us. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.